Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Joel and Kristen Campbell live in Nashville, Tennessee. They met at Lipscomb University and have been married for eight years. Joel works as Director of Strategic Initiatives for a healthcare company that helps health plans manage high-risk populations with substance use disorders. Kristen works part-time as a nurse, but mainly stays home now with their children. They have three children, Owen, who is five, Hensley, who is almost two, and their son, Bodie, passed away two days after he was born in 2019 from fetal high drops caused by hemolytic disease of a newborn. In 2021, they welcomed their daughter, Hensley Bodie, at 34 weeks after 22 IVIG infusions during pregnancy and a lot of miracles by God. They live in the joy of God's goodness and are so beyond thankful for his faithfulness. We're so excited to have Joel and Kristen with us here today. Um, They live in Nashville, and so they're with us virtually. Um, So thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to be Um, here. Okay, so let's just start um, y'all telling kind of your story um, and um, just kind of how it began and, and, and a little bit of background about Bodie and just y'all's story. Um, so we have three children. We have Owen, who is five, and then Hensley, who will be two in July. Um, and then Bodie was in between them. He was born in 2019. Um my first pregnancy with Owen was very uneventful. Um, it was in 2017 and had a very healthy pregnancy, um, healthy baby and, and no issues at all. Um, we went in to my pregnancy with Bodie expecting the same, like anyone, um, that it would just, you know, be smooth sailing as much as it could. The pregnancy the entire time was very uneventful. Um, we actually did not have any idea that Bodie was as sick as he was throughout the pregnancy. Um, when I went in for my routine blood work at the very beginning, like the eight week appointment, um, they, it came back that, um, I carried, it is, it is, there's two types of antibodies that are C. There's a capitalized C and a little C, um, and it's the lowercase C antibody. Um, it's it's pretty uncommon, and there's not much data about it. Um, it works very similarly to if you have anti-D, which is what they give Rogam to um, if you've had that shot during pregnancy. Um, there is just no treatment for this one or no way to prevent it from harming the baby. However, at the time, um, you know, my doctor was very hopeful that it wouldn't cause any issues at all. I left that appointment, you know, like anyone, I Googled it. There's not much about it on the internet other than just research articles. Um, There's not really clear data. The only thing she told us was there was potential, there might be a potential need for a uterine blood transfusion 
later in the pregnancy if he did become sick. Um, but we would follow my labs, my whole pregnancy and, and kind of go from there. I, so I, every appointment that I had, I just went to a regular doctor, not high risk or anything. They did blood work, um, which continuously came back normal. And, um, we had our 20 week anatomy scan and he looked perfect and healthy and absolutely no health issues seemed to be going on. Then at the time, so we made it to 28 weeks with normal blood work. And um, at the time we were under the impression that my blood work was still completely normal. At 28 weeks, my doctor said, you know, everything's looking good. And all your scans are coming back good. All your blood works good. I think we're good to stop doing blood work and would just wait for delivery. And so that's kind of what we did. After Bodhi passed away, we found out that there was a miscommunication with the lab and our doctor. Um, and the lab was basically telling her that the ratio of the little C was so high, they couldn't read it. Um, she misunderstood that as though the ratio was so low, they couldn't read it. Um, um, so basically around 28 weeks is probably when he started struggling, um, and becoming anemic. So we didn't, and we didn't find any, any of that out until after he was born. Um, so we continued on the pregnancy. It was completely normal at 37 weeks. Um, I went into labor naturally. Um, we were all, including our doctor thinking, you know, this is just time for baby to come. Our first was a week early. Um, once again, it was really uneventful. I'd had, um, with our first, I'd had a 52 hour labor. Oh, wow. We didn't know any different and the labor was taking a while, but that it kind of took a while with our first. Um, and so we didn't worry about that. My doctor wasn't concerned about that. I went into labor on a Thursday night, really late. Like we had already gone to bed and I woke up with contractions. Um, it continued into Friday. Friday, I actually went to work for part of the day because my contractions weren't terrible. And I thought, well, I'm a nurse. I thought, you know, I'm going to be running around all day. This might help speed it up. So I went for half a day and then my mom and Joel met me at the, at the mall for the afternoon. And we did a lot of mall walking, trying to get <laughs> everything to kind of progress. Um, it didn't. So we went home and we were actually living with my parents at the time because we were renovating our house. And so, you know, all of us still continued to think, well, maybe tomorrow or maybe in the middle of the night. Um, everyone went to bed. I continued to labor all night. It didn't seem to be progressing or, or getting any worse, but it also wasn't slowing down. And on Saturday morning, at some point in the morning, I looked at my husband and my mom and I said, I really just, I, I don't feel right about this. And I don't, I can't remember the last time I felt him move, um, which for anyone that's been in labor, it is a little difficult to feel a move when you're having lots of contractions. Um, so we still weren't overly concerned, but we went on to the hospital and they put me on to the monitor and we heard his heartbeat and I can vividly remember Joel looking at me and saying, there's his heart. He's okay. Like mm -hmm. he's still alive. He's okay. And so we kind of all, it was, it was Joel, me and my mom, we all kind of let out a deep breath and started to relax. I think they brought me like a Coke to try to get things moving a little more. And then I had another contraction and 
probably like five nurses ran into the room, flipped me on my side, gave me, started giving me oxygen and explained that when I, every time I had a contraction, his heart rate was decelling. Um, so we were going to need to do an emergency C-section immediately. I think I was, you know, I labored this whole long and I think I was only at two centimeters. So like there was no chance for me other than an emergency C-section. Um, so our doctor showed up. I mean, she was probably, I mean, I think there within 10 minutes, it, it didn't feel like any time. My dad came back to the room. He said a short little prayer and she, I can remember her saying, all right, let's go have a baby today. Um, at this point, no one had any idea that he was sick or suffering. Um, so they took us back. They started the C-section. He was born. I can remember thinking, um, when I hear him cry, I know it's going to be okay. Um, and he never cried. Um, mm -hmm. And they started, they immediately shouting started happening in the room and they called a code. Um, Nikki nurses ran in and started CPR on him. And Joel, I sent Joel with him to the NICU. Um, still, we had no idea what was going on. Um, I remember laying there and just thinking, like, what, what has happened? Like, wh what is going on? Um, they finished the C-section. They took me back to recovery room. And a um, NICU doctor came in and talked to us about how sick he was. Um, she basically said that he was severely anemic. Um, he was suffering from fetal hydrops, which is where there's a, an accumulation of fluid on all his tissues and organs, and he was in complete organ failure. Um, there was no idea if he was going to survive another minute or if he was going to survive at all or or what, but they were going to need to transfer him to Vanderbilt. Um, I was at St. Thomas. That's where my doctor delivers. They were going to need to transfer him to Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt NICU is just a higher level um, for the care that he needed. Um, they specifically needed, um, it's called whole body cooling. Um, basically, they put him in therapeutic hypothermia to prevent brain damage. Um, so Joel went with him to Vanderbilt. I obviously had, had before he left, they did wheel me down on my hospital bed because I was still numb from the C-section. And I was able to hold his hand while they prepared him to leave. Um, mm. I was unable to leave because I had a C-section and um, I, my doctor didn't have privileges at Vanderbilt. Um, so I was kind of stuck at St. Thomas. And so Joel went with him um, that night. It, my lab work came back that I was suffering from, um, it's called mirror syndrome. It's um Basically, how Bodhi's body was filling with fluid, my body was mirroring the same thing. It prevents pre presents similar to preeclampsia, and so they had to start me on a magnesium drip, um, which if you've ever been on magnesium, it knocks you out, which I think in the long run was a gift from God because I was, I, I was stuck there, but I don't remember much of the next couple days. Um, Joel spent... 24 hours a day by Bodhi's side, surrounded by our family and friends. And my mom was with me at St. Thomas until I could be um, released. And so I, Bodhi was born on Saturday, March 2nd. And I was um, released from the hospital on Monday, March 4th. Um, 
and shortly after I got there, the doctors talked to us about, you know, Bodhi was not going to survive and he passed away that afternoon. Mm. Wow. So Joel, tell me about even your experience too, because you were you in the room during her emergency C-section? Were you seeing all this happen? So yes, I was. I was in the room for the um, C-section, and and my side of the story um, was very much um, from that moment of us getting uh, whisked away to the emergency C-section um, to how how fast everything happened. Um, it was kind of uh, surreal. Um, really, the the thing that. The, the feeling that I go back to is what I always tell people. I, I hope that no one ever has to feel that. Um, but the, the, the silence in the room of the, uh, the C-section when that was happening, um, it was just, um, very, very scary. Um, cause you, you know, you always dream of those moments being a, uh, a happy time. Um, but we could both sense that something was very, very wrong. Um, the moment it was happening, um, and they had to, um, move so quickly, even for the C-section with Kristen that, um, it was, she was in a lot of pain actually for the C-section, which was, um, another p- a part that she, uh, she left out, um, but it happened so quickly that the the numbing and, and medicine wasn't able to um, start to even work. Um, mm. And then uh, when they pulled Bodhi out, um, there was no crying. There was um, no, uh, you know, you could see everyone was working intensely. Um, they weren't exactly communicating to us that something was wrong yet, um, but we could feel it uh, in the room. And that's really that moment. Um, so they got him uh seemingly stabilized and they they took him off to the NICU and I went with him um and so the hardest part for those next uh 48 hours for me was um being apart from Kristen and also starting to take care of Bodie um it was it was a position that I I wouldn't want anyone else to have to have to ever be in but Kristen was at um, another hospital down the street and I was uh I was staying with Bodie um we had family and friends that came came to Vanderbilt with us um but those those 48 hours I was in a um just a really tough tough place to to know that uh things were happening to my wife and I couldn't, couldn't be with her. And she was, she was struggling. And we also had our new son that was, um, born and he was also, um, also struggling, but we were, we were super thankful when, uh, Kristen had great support around her at, um, at the hospital she was at. And then we had family and friends come and stay with, um, stay with me and Bodie at the, um, at Vanderbilt. Um, and so did, that, was, that was my side. And did Vanderbilt, you know, while you're there, those 48 hours, um, are they being open and honest with you about just how sick he was and whether, you know, they thought he would be able to survive this? And was it a like, we really need to get your wife here? Kind of tell me about what they were saying to you. I would I would say for the first twenty four hours um, there was a a glimmer of hope. It wasn't presented as this is like the end. Um, they were they basically did all of the things that they could do for their, those first twenty four hours, um, and they were they were trying everything they could they could think of, um, and they knew to to do. And thankfully, um, 
our uh, our brother-in-law um, is a physician as well, and he was there the whole time uh, with me pretty much. Um, so he was able to uh, translate a lot of things for us and help us out on that front. Um, but I would say there was there was a little bit of hope the first uh, 24 hours, but um, after that we kind of knew um, things were things were not gonna not gonna turn in the in the positive direction for us um, with with Bodie's life. I will say that they. Um, it, it, they were urgently trying to get me there. They couldn't physically move me until they could take me off the magnesium. Um, but my OB's office had everyone at their office figuring out how they could transfer my care to a physician at Vanderbilt that could, they could just move me to a room over there. Um, on Sunday night is when they finally took me off the magnesium and they were able to kind of communicate a little bit more with me about it. Um, the neonatologist from Vanderbilt spoke to me on the phone and her words exactly Sunday night were, um, I, ma'am, I just want you to know that he might not make it till tomorrow. Mm. Um, and so it was urgently trying to get me there, but it was very difficult to find a physician that was willing to take on our situation and our case. And I mean, it was the weekend, so it would have to be a doctor that was willing to come in and be on call. And so, you know, we were lucky that they they at least released me on Monday after a C-section because it was really only like 24, maybe 70, I don't even think it was 72 hours that I was released. So I think it, it was urgent, but it probably didn't turn urgent till Sunday. Okay. And so you're, you know, wheeled over there. I mean, drive, wheeled in, I imagine. And so you, at that point, when you get there on Monday, are you aware, because I guess the doctor had talked to you the night before, you know that really you're coming to say goodbye. I didn't necessarily know that I was coming to say goodbye. Um, She had said that, but um, I guess I just had hope. Yeah. Um, I think like any mom, like I just hope that this bad dream we would just wake up from. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm a nurse and, um, I worked a very tiny short stint in a NICU, but I knew immediately when I walked into the NICU and they didn't ask me to wash my hands and I turned mm-hmm. the corner. And if you, if a lot of, some of these people that listen to this might have um, children in the NICU at Vanderbilt. So it's very big. It's not a small little NICU. There's a bunch of hallways. But when I was wheeled around the corner and there was probably 30 of our friends and family either in his room or lined the hallways to his room, um, I knew immediately, like, they don't allow this in a NICU. Um, that they don't allow people to come back here really, um, that it was, they were allowing us all to say goodbye. Wow. Wow. And y'all at that time had a, a one or a two-year-old? Um, he was 16 months. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, you know, obviously you're also concerned about him because y'all are obviously he's getting passed off and and praise the lord he's not going to remember any of it um <laughs> you know that that we think about that too even um my youngest had a couple stays in the hospital and my kids were four and two and honestly the four-year-old doesn't even remember a lot of it where i had you know tremendous guilt that i had like up and left them to go stay at the hospital with her and um and they have no memories of it you know so 
But obviously, you're also, I know, as you know, having someone else worried about him and how he's doing. And um, and so how much time did you end up getting with Bodie? A lot of this, my memory has thankfully blocked out. But I think I was released around like 10, 1030 on Monday. And um, he passed away by five, probably. I mean, it was definitely before dinner time. Okay. Um, and so it was just a few, it wasn't very long. Um, yeah. we were there, I got to sit by his side for a while and then, um, the doctors pulled us away and talked to us about his condition and, and everything. And then, um, we actually got to hold him, um, and he passed away in my arms. Wow. And Joel, were you knowing your wife was being discharged and she was coming? I mean, kind of tell me about, I know you wanted her to be there and by your side, but you obviously had a front row seat to see how sick he really was. Um, and and hearing the truth from the doctors and your brother-in-law and others as well. So kind of tell me about that too. I mean, that had to be hard knowing that your wife was about to come in and see this and experience this um, for her first time of really getting to, quote unquote, spend time with him since she just gotten a little bit of time at the beginning. So kind of tell me about that part. Yeah, so, so she says at that uh, moment on Monday, coming in, she, she still had hope on, uh, on Sunday night, I actually had to make a pretty difficult decision to help her understand that she needed to stay at the hospital she was in, um, to take care of herself. Uh, because I, I was seeing that things were not progressing in a positive direction, like we were hoping. Um, and I, I, I couldn't explain to her very much at that moment. Cause like she said, she was, um, she was under, uh, that mag- magnesium drip, which was, uh, really kind of sedating her. And it was, it was a, it was a really tough, um, discussion we had to have. And I, I told her that she needed to stay and take care of herself and that we would get her there the next morning. Um, and so I, I by that point, I was starting to to lose the hope, um, which was which was very very tough. But I knew I knew that next morning we were going to get her there, and thankfully we were able to get the um, doctors to figure out how to um, how to get her well enough to to be there on Monday. Yeah, and I know from you know speaking with so many fathers through the years that you know that is such a struggle of. Um, you know, I feel like as as mothers, we are the the nurturers. We want to, you know, just be there and be by their side and sing and hold their hand and do all those things where the father is often the fixer. You want to fix it. And so I can only imagine that, you know, you're a pull of wanting to to be with her and be by her side and fix her and then also be with Bodie and be by his side and fix him. And so I know that had to be a really difficult decision of, um, you know, just where to be and what to do. And obviously you had your mother, Kristen, which we've gotten to know your your precious mother because she's such a great supporter of the Forcements Fund. So we know she's amazing. So we know that you had her too. But I know that had to be such a struggle for you, Joel, to see that she was hurting physically, emotionally, all of the things, um, but that also you you needed to be with Bodhi as well. Um, and I just, I know through, you know, our story 15 and a half years ago, and then all the stories since of just 
father saying how hard it is um, to just sit there and watch and not be able to fix it or do anything, you know, but to just sit there and watch is seems to always be so much harder on the man than it is the woman where we can kind of often, not that it's not hard on us, but, you know, I could sit there for 12 hours and and my booty would go numb and it wouldn't face me, you know, where David wanted to get up and walk and move and go talk to someone or do something. And I just was content just to sit there. So I know that had to be really difficult on you as well, Joel. Yeah, that's uh, that's spot on for for how I was feeling. Um, and then just going back to those those feelings of Sunday night, I I just I knew we were going to have that moment as a family together the next day. I just I I knew inherently that was going to happen, and so I had to. I didn't want that to be messed up by Kristen trying to force her way out of the hospital um, on Sunday, Sunday night, um, even after um, probably less than 24 hours after having an emergency C-section. Um, so I, I, I knew that that, that was my moment of fixing um, yeah. for that, that one moment. Cause I knew, I knew we were going to, I wanted, I wanted to have that moment for all of us as a family. And I could, I could, I, I trusted the doctors when they, they said they could, they could keep him till, till Monday, he was going to be okay until Monday. Okay. So I wanted to ask that. So they really did, in essence, just do everything they could to get him to 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 be there for you to be there. Um, and so they really just kind of continued to do everything they could. And then once you got there, Kristen, and you laid eyes on him, could you tell you know, I know you said all the people in the NICU and not washing their hands. There were a lot of things that clued you in as a nurse, mom. When you saw him, could you tell too, you know, he is very sick? I could tell. Um, it's hard when they have them, you know, hooked up to all these machines um, to like realize that he's not breathing on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in, an entire machine that's, you know, doing that for him. Um, cause when you're just looking at him, it looks like they're breathing and they're, you know, just laying there peacefully. Um, so I, I absolutely knew, I think some of the things they kept telling me and my mom, um, when we would talk to them is he's the sickest baby that we have at Vanderbilt right now. Wow. Um, which if you're familiar with Vanderbilt, they yeah. have a lot of very, very sick children, um, that he was the absolute sickest baby in the NICU at that time, which was really hard for me to wrap my mind around because I knew the, you know, the level of care that they have and the patients that they take in. So it's almost like I didn't want to believe it. Like, Oh, well, he can't be that sick. Um, but when I, when I saw him, um, I just, I, I just had a feeling, um, I, that, you know, he was already with God. Mm. His spirit was already with God. Wow. Okay. Well, tell me, you know, one of the things for us and then others as well. I mean, one of the the hardest things is definitely obviously saying goodbye, but then leaving a hospital, you know, with no baby. And I can only imagine y'all had the car seat in the car and, you know, the, the nursery ready and all those things. So we talk about the dreams that you had, you know, for the future and what that would look like. But even the tangible 
car seat in the car and the things that are around the house ready for a newborn. Um, I think so often when people think about, you know, someone else losing a, 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 a baby or a child, you know, they think about that moment of losing them, which is so incredibly hard, but also beautiful. I mean, it's in in a way of knowing that that he went from your arms straight to Jesus' arms and that that's all he ever felt, you know, that even though it's such a hard moment to have that, but to also know that that's a blessing you did, but then to have all those reminders. Um, and so, you know, tell me a little bit about that. Um, luck, I mean, I also think this is where God was a part of our story. And we were in the middle of, we had just moved in with my parents like the week before um, to tear down our house and, and rebuild. And so we didn't have a nursery set up. I mean, we had all the things. Our oldest was a boy, so I hadn't really bought like new clothes. Obviously, there was a few little things here and there or like little things friends had given me. We didn't have to come home to an empty nursery because okay. in my parents' house, there was a crib, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't spend all this time to yeah. paint the room and do all these things. And um, the hardest part I would say that I wasn't prepared for was, you know, within a small amount of time after he passed away, you know, you're, they're coming in with death certificates and asking you, do you want him to be cremated? Do you, do you want you know, him to go to a funeral home. And, and, and it, I don't think it, that that would be shocking to anyone, no matter if you knew your child was sick and, and wasn't possibly going to survive very long, or if in our case, it was a complete shock. Um, I, I just didn't know those things happened that fast. Um, so that was definitely really hard. Um, for me. And then obviously coming home, you know, unpacking their little bag that you packed for them. Um, I still have all his little passies that I took for him to the hospital and the little um, blankets and the little hats that I had packed. I still have them in the same baggie that I took him. I never unpacked the baggie. I just couldn't do it. Uh, and it's just in a little box that has all his things um, that we had prepared for him. Um, but we didn't have to necessarily take down a nursery. I mean, we had to put things away. My, thankfully living with my mom. And like you said, she is um, Wonder Woman. She is wonderful and, and just a doer and willing to just do it with. Um, and so she, she put a lot of things away for us without us having to, to do that. And then has given, obviously given it back to us now, but she just kind of put it aside so that we, we wouldn't have to be the ones to open it and look at it and shut the door on that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lead us through then. Um, first off, let me just say how sorry I am. No one should have to bury a child and no one should have to make those decisions. And no one should, um, even like you said, the the conversations that people, I think, don't even realize you have to have, you know, after the child has passed is, is or anyone has passed, but a child has passed. I feel like uh, we've been facing this recently with dear friends of ours. And one of the things I said is, you know, if you have, you know, a, a spouse or an adult pass, you've probably at some point had some kind of conversation of, you know, cremated or buried, you know, do you? 
you know, you want just a wood box? Like, what do you what do you want? Where do you want to be buried? Some of those questions have probably started to be asked. For David and I, you know, we've been very open and honest because we've now buried a child and my mother. And so we've kind of been like, hey, let's like write it down. I want to know exactly what, you, what songs do you want? Which sometimes people are like, gosh, y'all are pretty morbid. I'm like, no, I just want to know. I don't want to, I, I, I don't want it to be thrown. But with a child, you obviously never imagine that. And so from beginning to end, when you're getting asked those questions of what you want, it's not like something you've ever even thought about. And so it's this whole nother realm of decisions that are having to be made when you're barely functioning. Um, I heard someone recently say, you know, during deep grief, really, you're probably firing at about 30% your max. And so, you know, 70% of kind of your mind and your body aren't even working right, really, because you're so deep into grief, under the waves, whatever you want to say. And so it's hard to even know what steps to take next and where to go next. And, um, you know, when people say, what do you need? You don't even know what you need. I mean, you you don't know what you need because you don't know what the next five minutes are going to look like for you. But lead me a little bit through y'all's decisions then to um, try to get pregnant again and and what that kind of looked like. Because obviously now, you've, you know, you know what happened. You understand more of that things that happened in the womb, um, you know, that were, I guess, causes, you would say, of what happened to him when he was born. So lead me then through kind of next steps for y'all. Um, so we, it, it was the next year was 2020, March of 2020 was when Bodhi technically turned one. Um, shortly after, I think he passed away that summer, we met with, um, maternal fetal medicine, which is like a high risk doctor and kind of had a discussion on, I think for me, um, it was, is a biological child even an option? It's almost like I needed to, to move on from that chapter if that's what had to be done. Or do we need to adopt? Like what what is the next step for us to have another child? Um, we were in at that time in no rush. We weren't ready. Um, but we had a conversation with them. Um, and then March of 2020 happened, um, which I think threw everyone for, you know, <laughs> questioning what exactly the next thing was it was do we even try this year because COVID is going on and it's not really safe for pregnant women and and all these kinds of things to you know I don't want Owen to be too old and and it was just a hard season um, like it was for so many um we got pregnant we met with um the maternal fetal medicine again in September of 2020, at the very end. Um, but can I ask first? So that summer of 2019, mm-hmm. what did they say? She said it would be possible. Um, that when we were ready, we would need to come in, and Joel would need to do some blood work. We might have done it then. Yeah. I think we did blood work while we were there. Um, okay. Because so with antibodies. Um, your carriers for all different things. Everybody is. And so I'm technically, I'm trying to think of the wording for this. I'm a big C and a big C. Um, and Joel could have either been a big C and a little C or a little C and a little C. So all of our future biological children would either be 50% chance 
the same thing as Bodhi or a hundred percent chance, the same thing as Bodhi. And so with he, Owen, it just pat like it just so no, I, that is when I was exposed to C to the little C. So okay. you can get these in different ways. A lot of times it's from blood transfusions, which I've never had one. So the only logical explanation is when I delivered with Owen is when I was exposed to his little C and my body created antibodies. Got it. Okay. Um, Okay. So he was, there was no issues during his pregnancy. Um, So Joel got lab work done and it came back that we were a hundred percent going to have biological children that had the potential of what happened to Bodie. Um, he's little C, little C. So, you know, it was a a lot of prayer and, um, all odds were against our daughter Hensley. Um, and God performed a lot of miracles, I believe to get her here. Um, but she, she definitely told us, you know, it was possible, you know, we have a hundred percent chance that there will be, there will need extreme medical care whether it's in utero or after your baby's born. So we didn't exactly know what the outcome was, but she said, you know, we could do it. The baby could be born at 20 weeks. The baby could be born at 24 weeks, but our baby, our next child would have to be delivered early um, so that hopefully the antibody would not affect their red blood cells. Um, And so we got pregnant in... December of 2020, um, after speaking to them again and that time they told us about something called IVIG, um, which is basically infusions that a lot of times they use after a patient has had chemotherapy or they're immunocompromised to kind of boost their, um, immune system. But in our case, it blocked, my body from attacking her red blood cells. Okay. Um, and so we got pregnant. We started seeing the high risk doctor immediately. Um, blood work like it was in Bodhi's pregnancy was happening. I got ultrasounds every week um, wow. and we measured certain blood flow in her brain. Um, and they ex- kind of explained it to me as though it should be like Kool-Aid on the, like when you're looking at the ultrasound, it should look like Kool-Aid's running through her, her veins and arteries. But if it starts looking like ketchup, that means that she's becoming anemic. And so they were kind of just watching that and the blood work, um, ended up having to have 22 IVIG infusions. I went every week, um, from February to when she was delivered in July. Um, the day that she was delivered, we were planning for her to be delivered on Friday because it looked like from my blood work and some of the stuff they were watching on ultrasound that she was starting to become anemic. Um, and so I went into the appointment. They did all the regular stuff. The doctor came in and said, all right, well, we're going to go deliver today. Um, there's some things on the ultrasound that look a little concerning. I'm not it might absolutely be nothing, but there's no reason to wait till Friday. Let's just do it today. Um, and she was how many weeks? She was 34 weeks. Okay. Okay. Um, they were hoping to get me as close to 36 as possible. Um, but because we had planned it for Friday, I had already had, um, the steroid shots to help boost her lungs and everything. Um, and she was born at 34 weeks, perfectly healthy. 
Um, and absolutely no issues. She had, you know, a high bilirubin count. And so they put her under the billy lights. She spent 10 days in the NICU, never needed oxygen, never needed any type of medicine, never needed. They were worried she was going to need a um, blood transfusion, either in utero, which she never had to have, or right after, shortly after delivery. Um, and she was perfectly healthy. And wow. she is currently just a huge miracle. And uh, every day I look at her and, and I, I truly, every day at some point in my day, I just look at her and I think all odds were against you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But because of the goodness of God, like you're here. And why? So, so if they were watching you that whole time and it still was looking like Kool-Aid, as you mm-hmm. said, why then each week continue to do that? Was that just preventive? No. Like we don't know a total number? or right. So they didn't know. There's no way um, for them to know when a baby is going to become affected or when the IVIG is going to stop working, blocking her red blood cells from becoming injured. Um, and so there, it was pretty much just a guessing game. Um, wow. Basically, they told me I could come in one week and it could go terribly wrong by the next appointment, which was literally one week away. So in seven days, she could have been completely healthy at one appointment and spiraled completely out of control by the next week. So by when we got to 20 weeks, they kind of prepared us like, okay, any week you come in here, we could have to deliver her Mm. or we could, or we could have to go in and do an interuterine blood transfusion. Okay. Wow. And would they have done that there? That's something they could have done. Yeah. I would have had to go to the hospital, but if they had seen that they needed a blood transfusion, it would have been pretty much the same day. I would have gone down. They would do it in OR um, because it is risky. Um, yeah. it's basically giving a blood transfusion to a fetus. Yeah. Cause it's the blood transfusion to her, not to you. Correct. It would be to her. Wow. Okay. Um, and so they would, um, have to be in an OR in case it went wrong and yeah. they had to deliver her immediately. And is there a higher risk for boys versus girls? Are there yeah. any of, nope. Okay. There's no risk. Uh, I mean, there's no, there's a lot of risk, but there is no, there's no difference in the risk. Um, the hard part for us is that Bodhi, after seeing her survive and be fine, um, everything that happened to Bodhi was a hundred percent, hundred percent preventable. Mm. Um, obviously it would have been a lot of appointments and if it had been caught like it should have been, it would have been, um, we would have either started IVIG or he would have gotten interuterine blood transfusions and he would be here today. Mm. And I'll, I'll just add that was, that was one of the hardest parts for me after losing Bodhi was really being able to listen to that next pregnancy with uh, Hensley. They kept telling us everything's looking good. Everything's normal. Every test we're running is normal. And they kept uh, telling us, the doctors kept telling us, you know, this is something we don't see all the time, but we can help prevent it. And we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to get her here. Okay. Um, and that was one of the absolute hardest things to grapple with, um, knowing yeah. that what happened to Bodhi was uh, preventable. Um, but it just, it, it, 
taught us that. And if there's if there's something that can be taken away from this for um, those that are listening, it's just continue to be your own advocate and your family's advocate in the healthcare system. We are both workers in the healthcare system. And we unfortunately didn't ask enough questions um, through through all of this, um, and that's that's one of the hardest parts is knowing that uh, it was preventable. And um, th- yeah, just just being listening to every of one of those appointments, um, sometimes multiple times a week, having them say everything's okay still, everything's yeah. okay still with Hensley was was really challenging for me because um, I didn't. I didn't want to believe it. I, I wanted to question everything from that moment um, just because that was, uh, it, it wasn't okay um, previously. So that was, that was a hard thing, and especially with just this, um, the rarity of the situation we, we were in. Um, there's just very little known. Um, I mean, you can, you can Google pretty much everything nowadays. Um, and this was one thing you don't get a lot of information on. Um, so it's a, that's a scary um scary thing, even, even how far we've come with, with modern day medicine, but it was, um, we're, we're so blessed that, um, Hensley was able to be, um, was able to, um, is able to be with us now and is, is super healthy and a perfect little baby. And y'all's story and y'all's, um, situation and journey, it, it will, I know this is hard to hear because it's, I'll tell you in a minute, something that happened to us similar, but, um, you know, it, it, you probably, your story and Bodie has probably saved many other lives. I mean, obviously Hensley, but even more, I mean, your OB is not the same OB. The, the, you know, team is not the same team, just different things that have happened. I mean, I know we see that here in Memphis at St. Jude, that, you know, the research and the things they are doing to save lives of children. Um, I read something recently in St. Jude's magazine of saying that in the 70s, you know, there was a diagnosis. If you got a certain diagnosis, it was like a 10% chance of living. And now it's 90%. Well, you know, 1970 to hear the the different things that they've been able to do. We had a similar, um, I was actually at our children's hospital seeing families, mentoring families. And um, I saw a, a grandmother there pushing a child around who had um, uh, medical needs. And she stopped me and she said, you know, are, are you Brittany Spence? And I said, I am. And she said, I'm so-and-so. I was um, one of the NICU nurses at the birthing hospital where Forrest was delivered. And she said, and this is probably, he probably would have been eight or nine. I mean, it was it was years down the road because um, Labonner had a new hospital. So I mean, it was years down the road. And he and she said, I was one of the birthing. I mean, I was one of the NICU nurses. I was in the room. I was the one that told your mom and your mother-in-law, he's just a wimpy white boy and he needs a little bit of support. She said, I've thought about how I said that for years because I literally looked at your mom and your mother-in-law and said, he's, he's going to be okay. Like, we're not, we're not, it's okay. None of us knew how sick he was and how sick he was about to become. And she said, but I want you to know that we have changed how we do things at this hospital in NICU. The first signs of a baby breathing fast and having respiratory distress, we immediately treat it like they have group B strep 
and we immediately treat it. And that's not what they did with Forrest. And in that moment, I, I was like, oh, thank you for sharing that. Da, da, da. And I then left the hospital and I called my husband and I weeped weeped crying. I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was crying so hard because it it felt like in that moment of my son's life, quote unquote, was sacrificed so others could live. Of, you know, his life, why those procedures, why those things weren't in place. Because I, I do think that if if force had received the the antibiotics and all the things he needed immediately at signs of distress. I don't know what would have happened today. Um, but one thing I've definitely learned is you can't play the what if game. You can't play the should have game. You know, it is what it is. And, and our faith allows us to rest on that too, to rest on the truth and the matter that we know and that we trust in that. But, but, also getting to a place where I can say, that makes me sad. I wish so badly that those procedures had been in place because maybe things would be different. But man, another moment of forest life making such an impact. Um, come to find out a dear friend of ours had a child who also had group B strep after forest, um, was breathing fast, whole nine yards, got antibiotics, and she's a beautiful, living, amazing girl. And that mom knows it. I mean, that mom knows because of the things they put in place because of forced life. But it is hard, as y'all have said, it is hard to hear that. It is hard to know that, that if things had been different, then maybe things would have been different. Um, and so, but to trust in the fact that that Bodhi's life is making such a difference, a difference for Hensley and a difference for so many other families that are going to be experiencing what y'all experience. That's your story. And even hearing this and knowing, okay, I have a, I have a, there is a chance that my next child could. There's a lot of things we got to do, a lot of questions we got to ask, a lot of people we got to meet with, but there is a, a, a chance that could happen. And what a gift that you're giving people that you're willing to share your story and you're willing to share Bodhi's story and your pain and your heartache of what you've been through is really going to help others though. I will say um, when my OB came into my room at the hospital um, before I was discharged and um, she looked at me and my mom and said, um, this won't happen to one of my patients again. Um, she said, I will know everything about this and it, it, I won't let it happen to one of them again. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do believe, you know, it's hard to say, you know, that your son, your son's life was taken and someone else is going to reap the benefits of that in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's such a beautiful picture of, you know, what Jesus did for us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um we've we've talked about that even too of, you know, for us, I don't I don't think I don't think any of our children like we very quickly got pregnant with Austin, our second, and I don't think we would have 
I don't think I would have had a three month old and been like, let's do this again. You know, so for me, I'm also very aware that, you know, if it wasn't for Forest Life and what happened, I don't I don't know what the rest of my life would look like. You know, our marriage, our jobs, obviously the Forest Spins Fund, but lots of things are different because of his life. And there are definitely moments where I struggle with that, saying I'd give it all back, you know, because then I say, well, if I if I gave it all back, in essence, I'd be saying I gave back Austin and Miller and Maggie because the way that that fell and happened. Um, and so I think all we can do as parents who have walked that hard journey of saying goodbye to our children is to let others know there's hope um, and there's joy and there's purpose and there's purpose in the pain and um, uh, there's beauty from ashes. And, you know, Hensley's life alone is beauty from ashes, but your marriage and your family and the way that y'all look at things and just the way that you look at Hensley day in and day out, knowing um, what a gift she is. And Owen, too. I mean, that they're gifts and that um, I never, ever again have looked at at anybody and said, you know, I, I realize more than ever that pregnancy and a healthy child, it is a miracle in itself, that it's not just a given. Um, and so, um, you know, what a gift it is. So thank you all for sharing your story with us. Um, it's really been a gift to hear it. Um, I knew bits and pieces, but I definitely didn't know it all. And so um, I just appreciate y'all sharing. Is there anything that y'all want to leave us with before we sign off? You know, just take it one day at a time when you're in that season of hard. Um, when when I sat down to kind of review our story a couple nights ago, it was overwhelmingly sad to me. Um, I cried as I kind of wrote out exactly what happened. Um, and so when you look at the big picture, I think it can be really overwhelming. But when you take it one day at a time, it was, you know, while the event and the grief lasts forever for us. It was two days out of 365 days that year um, that we suffered that terribly. Um, while, so I think just, I think knowing that God is good no matter what um, is something that helped me to kind of get through it. That I, could, I, I was created. God knew when he made me and when he made Joel, he knew that this was going to happen. Um, and he, he created us to be able to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say just one, one last thing we were, uh, we didn't get into this, but we wanted to thank you all for helping provide, um, grief counseling for us. Um, after, after all this happened to us, the Forest Spence Fund, um, was able to provide counseling for us. And through that, I, I learned something very important, which was, I needed to share my story and share our story. And that was how I was going to uh, be able to deal with the grief, um, which is very different than, than Kristen, um, even though she's, she shared wonderfully today. Um, for me, it was I needed to talk to as many people about Bodhi as possible. Um, so I think uh, as, as, as a man, that's often, that's often hard for me to share my story or share my emotions, share my feelings. Um, but that was something I learned I needed to do um, to to um, handle the grief, um, and that was that was the best um, best thing I could learn um, from the the weeks and moments uh, and months after 
after this um, was to share share our story. Um, so I would I would encourage others who are grieving um, right now if if it uh, if that's uh, part of something that you haven't tried yet, um, share your story with people, family, friends, strangers, <laughs> anyone that will listen. Um, that that helped me um, for sure, just just greatly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was truly, you know, our joy and honor to be able to help y'all with counseling. That's such a a huge part of, um, you know, when David and I started this, we we knew that was a huge part of what we wanted to do because we were blessed tremendously um, by our church paying for grief counseling because we couldn't have afforded it. And um, and it was such a gift to us. So we knew that that was something we felt very strongly that we were going to do for others. So um, thank you all for sharing that, too, because I hope others hear that how important that was to you. I feel like I share a lot about how important it was to me, but, um, you know, I still feel like sometimes there's a stigma on counseling and and we want to break that barrier down and say it's really can be such a beautiful, helpful, healing thing for families. Um, so we're glad that we we could offer that and that y'all took us up on it and y'all did it. So um, thank y'all for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing Bodhi with us. And um, we just appreciate y'all spending time with us today. Thank you so much. We, as much as I don't want to say necessarily enjoyed um, having to be on this, but it was, um, it's special work that y'all do um, for people that are in a season of hard. And so um, we hope that if just one person hears it, that they know that there are resources um, to help them get through that season. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.